Hi, everyone. This is Ben Edwards, and you are listening to Crossing Over, a podcast that is dedicated to exploring the human journey. You can find Crossing Over on your favorite podcast app, including iTunes and Google Play. You can also find Crossing Over on Facebook, facebook.com slash crossingoverpodcast, as well as on the website, crossingoverpodcast.wordpress.com. A few months ago, I led a book study on a book called The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. It was during this book study that I met Paul. Paul is 84 years old, and as a black man who was a young adult during the Civil Rights Movement, his voice was incredibly valuable during the book study, and I'm incredibly grateful to have gotten to know him and to have had the opportunity to sit down and have this conversation that you're about to listen to. If you like the conversation, please take a minute and go to Facebook and like the episode, leave a comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening. Uh, why don't we start off by you just telling a little bit about yourself, and you can tell me whatever is relevant and helpful for us to get to know you. Okay. Well, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I had a very close family. Uh, unfortunately, my mother died when I was very young, but my grandmother uh, raised me. Mm. And there were two cousins, and we grew up together as boys, uh, three boys, you know. And we had, um, I think, a very good childhood. Mm. We lived in what they called North Nashville. And North Nashville okay. is close to Fish University, not very far if you get on the bus a little bit, from Tennessee State University, the university that I attended. Um, I attended Tennessee State University for two years and then uh, joined the Air Force. Prior to that, during those two years, I used to work in Sandusky, Ohio, um, in a steel mill. Hmm. I would work there uh, as to get money, of course, to go to college. And one of the strange things that happened while I was there, it wasn't that strange, I was a chemistry major. And the people at the steel mill told me that if I would like quit school and actually stay in, at the steel mill, I could work in the lab and I could get a deferment and that was from the Korean War. And um, the guys in the steel mill though were very um, astute in a way. I mean the working man that works like with their hands and with their strength and etc. are very just good good old Americans I guess. Mm. They they were strong, they they but they told me don't do it. Say don't don't take that opportunity to work in the um, lab here because they'll probably capture you for life. You mm. should go ahead and go back to school and then, you know, maybe come back here if you want, you know. But anyway, get that education. Education was an important thing in my family. Yeah. It's really, um, uh, I think, a, it, I'm, I don't know whether it's strange or not, but my grandmother finished like the ninth grade and uh, she... Um, was very, just very astute at learning and etc. And my mother, while she went to Tennessee State also, <laughs> incidentally, and my mother actually got some help from my grandmother as far as her algebra class was concerned. Uh, she was just a, a whiz at math. Uh, my grandmother, as I said, which only had a ninth grade uh, education, hmm. but she um, she she just loved math. Uh, yeah. In those days, you know, you had a grocery store. And you had a um, 
maybe a charge account at the grocery store. I know that sounds funny, but so what you would do, and it was all kept by hand. Yeah. Um, the grocer would write it down, you know, whatever you uh, bought, and then you would write it down in your little book, and then at the end of the week or whatever, you'd uh, reconcile the two. And my grandmother was very good at rec. She would hmm. catch the grocer <laughs> at mistakes <laughs> all the time, and she was just very good at that. Yeah. But um, anyway, the the actually the neighborhood and the environment that I grew up in was very good. In those days, it was segregation, and not that I'm saying that I'm pro-segregation or anything like that, but Nashville had a unique um, situation, I think, with all of those colleges there. We had an influx of people from everywhere. And then plus, you got to actually have the best of the best of your community because they didn't have opportunities outside of of the community. Mm -hmm. And so we had very good teachers, and they were very inspiring and, and told you that you could do whatever you wanted to do, you know, just study. It worked out well. Yeah. I um, I actually, as I said, I went to Tennessee State for two years, and then I joined the Air Force. And the Air Force, um, I um, wanted to be a pilot. I mean, everybody wants to be a fighter pilot, I think. <laughs> now, this was 1952. Okay. And uh, what happened is um, I failed what they called a psychomotive test, which hmm. tests your reflexes. Okay. And so they said, well, you can go to OCS. And I didn't want to do that at the time. And so I spent 10 years in the Air Force, and during that 10 years, I'd gotten married and got out. The Air Force sent me to uh, Willis Air Force Base in Libya, and then to uh, Adana Air Force Base, it's called Inshalik now, in Turkey. Hmm. And then I came back home, and my wife had a sister that lived in Denver. So she came to visit her sister while I was overseas, and she liked it and said, well, why don't you put in for Denver, you know, when you come back from Turkey? Hmm. I said, okay. And so I did. They, in the Air Force, they have you. You can put your number one choice, number two, and number three. Okay. So I put it as number one, and the guy said, you did what? I said, I put it at number <laughs> one. He said, so you never get that, so you, 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 won't, you won't get Denver. But oh, fortunately, man. I did, and, yeah. and they sent me to Denver. Since I had gotten out of the Air Force and while I was in the reserves, I worked at a company called Jepson, and Jepson made aeronautical charts and maps for the airlines, for every airline in the world. Okay. So I worked at Jepson. I was in what they called the text department at first, where we made manuals to Hmm. give to the pilots. And and Jepson still does this, and Jepson was just far advanced of anybody else as far as making maps and so forth. And so anyway, I was out at Jepson for 13 years. And in the meantime, I wanted to keep my commission, so I was also in the Air National Guard. I was a weekender, as they called it. There's just so much to your life, which mm. which makes sense. You're um, 84, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that's a lot of life that's been lived. But you joined the Air Force mm-hmm. and worked yourself up to the point where you had people who wanted you to work at the Pentagon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you then had a job where you were briefing the Pentagon. I mean, you just, it it seems like you just have held a lot of really important positions. I mean, there's just a lot of really important jobs that you've had. It just seems like that maybe that was like a theme for you, that you 
held these positions that were just really, really important. People were asking you to do them. So that that must be like a, a testament to what your character is. You just kept getting promoted, I guess, hmm. uh, which is which is cool. Yeah. But, you know, it didn't seem like it was important, or whatever you want to call it at that time. Okay. It just seemed like it was, um, as I said, from my family and from the teachers and things where I grew up, uh, it was competing, and I just mm. felt like I, I, I like to compete. So you were competitive. And, and I, yeah, and I <laughs> thought I could do, you know, not everything, but yeah. almost anything that yeah. was in within my, you know, ability to do it. I, yep. I, I figured that I could do it. Yeah. And um, we, um, my, you know, and again, I had a supportive family, you know, and my wife and mm-hmm. et cetera. And um, it, it just seemed normal. You know, you, you just carry on, you know. So in the book study that we did, you had the chance to tell uh, just a bunch of stories. Mm-hmm. And like I said at the very beginning, like these stories just sort of captivated me. Um, and I think a part of the reason that they did is that I I haven't really had the opportunity, or maybe I have had the opportunity, but I haven't taken the time to sit at the feet of someone who grew up when you did mm-hmm. and just hear their stories. The book that we uh, read inside of the study was The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. And so particularly as it pertains to the civil rights movement, um, and things like segregation um, and just racial tension inside the country at that point in time. These are things that maybe in some ways people in my generation learned about in school, though probably not the complete story, but bits and pieces of it. Um, but I, I've just never taken the time to hear stories like I heard from you week after week. And so... Tell me about your engagement with the book and how it struck you and and what you sort of took away from the book as well as the the book study that we did. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, that really struck me is that how Du Bois actually managed to go down south, travel, and to come out alive, <laughs> if you yeah. want to call it that. And yeah. uh, it, was, it was really interesting I mean uh, there's a television program now that's called uh, Timeless or something of the sort Mm -hmm. and um, I really would have suffered and would have hated to live in his time and what they can do of course in this uh, television program is take you back in time and there's a black guy on the uh, in that program and one of the things he said, at least the episode that I saw, is that I don't want to go back to the end because you know <laughs> things were really bad, you know, yeah, etc. Yeah. But um, yeah, Du Bois was, I you know I had always been, as I said, an admirer of him and thought I had read the book and right. and I've read about it. I mean, you know, sure, there's just so sure. many things that happened to you, but um, yeah, I I really felt for him. I mean, in mm-hmm. a way to to have all of that. Um, I'll call it knowledge and just humanness, you know, being a human being and hmm. and really thinking that you're as good as anybody else and so forth. Yeah. At that time in history and him bottled up in there, it it must have been excruciating. And uh, one of the things I'm having difficulty with is that 
when we were in the class, you know, and discussing the book, it's kind of extemporaneous, you know, what I would say and talk, mm -hmm. and I can't think of what I say. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, yeah. I, I really yeah. don't know because you're interacting with all of those other people, you know, and right. then that, you know, brings things out that, you know, you, uh, you know, that you, oh, hadn't, yeah. you hadn't really thought about to say, but I mean, it's just right yeah. off the cuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. And we, we tried to create an, an atmosphere where people felt comfortable sort of saying whatever it, it was that did come up. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I guess the, the way that we talked about it is that, um, a lot of times in our society, maybe one, one of the biggest problems when it comes to conversations about race is that we, we have too much of a filter mm -hmm. because we don't want to sound like we're not politically correct. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, then we, we, we end up not even addressing the actual biases that are inside of us mm -hmm. um, or the, the assumptions, whether they're biased or not because no one's actually talking about it. We're being very, very friendly back and forth, but because no one's talking about it, nothing ever changes. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of intentionally said, I, I, I think that my exact words in, in the first week were something like that I'm asking for your permission to say stupid things mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and for, for, your, for you to give me grace in that, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to give that back to you as well. But so maybe it's not even that important to recall exactly what you said. But I, I do know that that there were a handful of stories, mm -hmm. and and I think that the stories were so important for a number of reasons. But the the biggest reason for me, as a thirty one year old in two thousand sixteen, the stories that you told were so important because when I when I learned about things like segregation mm -hmm. and the civil rights movement um, and I heard stories of blatant racism mm -hmm. I would always hear those stories with the assumption that this was so long ago mm -hmm. that it's such distant history and of course for me physically it is because it happened before I was alive but it's a bit disorienting to think that it's not so distant that there aren't still people among us who actually lived them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so hearing the stories that you, you told just brought me into that space over and over again. Um, and so I guess that, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I was hoping for with this podcast was that you might be willing to tell us maybe even just one of those stories mm -hmm. to, to, to kind of help to... Um, to show that this is your life that we're talking about. This isn't some distant past where, um, and I don't, I don't even know how to say it, but and we we as a culture maybe have have collectively um, convinced ourselves that this is so distant that it, it need not be talked about anymore mm -hmm. because it happened so long ago. But yet the very fact that you experienced some of these things, I think, would challenge that notion. Well, one of the ones that I do remember since you've been talking mm -hmm. is... Um, as I said, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a little over 200 miles from Memphis. And what happened is I um, I was assigned or, or actually stationed in Memphis right after I got out of basic. And um, I expected things, because this is Tennessee, mm. also, just like Nashville, 
things to be relatively the same. Yeah. Well, they were really quite different. I, I think, um, and I'm not saying that Mississippi is so bad, but I think Mississippi had an influence. It was almost like Mississippi is right on the border there. Right. And so what happened is we were, um, as I told you at the time I was enlisted, and we had on khaki pants and white T-shirts uh, another fella, a friend of mine, you know, in the military there. And so we decided to go out and take a look at Memphis to see what yeah. was going on and how it looked. Yeah. So we got on the bus, and I noticed that there were black people in the back, which is not that different from Nashville. In Nashville, what you do is you fill it up from the back to the front, and if you filled it all the way up with blacks, that was one of those things. If a white got on, he had to stand up. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, and I thought that was the way the system works right. mean, everywhere, you right. know. And so what happened is when we got on the bus, uh, these back, black people standing up in the back of the bus, almost up to half full, you know. and um, But there were empty seats up front. Hmm. And so I didn't know you know what was going on of course and I went to the edge of where the blacks were standing and sat down in one of the empty seats because I was going to fill it up from the back yeah so the bus driver came to a screeching halt he stopped the bus and most bus drivers maybe even now they have a little black bag where they'll have like a flashlight and some other things and you know right by their feet there so he screeched the bus to screeching stop and he said reached in his bag and pulled out a gun hmm. and he came back to me and my buddy there and he actually almost put it to our heads he put it in our face he says you know what are you guys doing or what are y'all doing I said you know this is nothing he says you know you're not supposed to sit there I said no I, I, I didn't know he says get up and so we got up, of course. I mean, the guy's got a gun. Right. And so the black people on the bus said, oh, said, don't, you know, leave those kids alone. I was like 20 years old at the time. But he said, leave, leave those kids alone. They didn't know any better, you know. I mean, they can stand up now. He says, no, get off my bus. Huh. And so we said, we said, you know, what have we done? He says, you know that's reserved for white people. And when I said, no, we didn't. He says, get off my bus. Hmm. And so they, and we were out in a you know a place that we were unfamiliar with uh actually it was almost rural where we were at the time on the bus and so he put us off the bus and mm. we were out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> standing there and uh what happened in in uh Memphis and I guess because it was closer to what you would say is the cotton belt uh, they would actually have these buses come and pick up cotton pickers, you know, to take them to the cotton fields to pick the cotton. They didn't do that. They didn't have cotton in Nashville. If they did, it wasn't enough to be commercially viable. Yeah. And so what happened is um, there were some people waiting on buses there. They were waiting on special buses, though, ones that actually came to pick up uh, cotton pickers. And But anyway, the public bus came, and we got on it and went, you know, back to town and back to base. And one of the things that it did to you is that you didn't enjoy going off base that much Mm. um but you did go to the um the black part of town i mean sure yeah sure and um and and you went downtown too but uh 
Yeah. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same as Nashville. Not that I'm saying Nashville was Nirvana, but sure. it was yeah, it was it, a, it was a, a lot different. different. Feel to it. it was a lot different. Yeah, so when when you told that story in our group, um, yeah, that was just one of those stories that just made me pause and 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 think and i think that you had mentioned that that was 1952 52 and so mm-hmm. so even putting it into the the perspective of the history that i had learned so so this is before the the big uh, boycott of 1955 mm-hmm. right that uh, rosa parks sparked yeah you know it's a it's it's a story once again that sort of fits in my mind into this category of of history mm-hmm. you know and Gosh, it sure doesn't feel like history when you're telling the story. I feel like I'm there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's 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 something that maybe feels a little bit more more connected to our reality today than mm-hmm. than what I learned back in school. You wouldn't go probably to. I mean, even in uh, Memphis again, you wouldn't get on a bus there, sit somewhere toward toward the front, and have the bus driver stop and put a gun to your head. Mm-hmm. I mean, that wouldn't happen today. I know, no. Um, so. Some very very um, specific things have changed, yeah. but then there's also these key things that it seems like they just keep circling back around. And so one of the things that right now is a really hot button topic is mass incarceration and how this disproportionately affects people of color. And so the conversation maybe is a bit more um, subtle and nuanced now mm-hmm. than than maybe what it was back then. And yet the conversation's still being had. So I, I'd, I'd like to know, uh, we, we have a few minutes left, if you would be willing to just kind of sum up from your perspective how things maybe have changed and gotten better, but mm-hmm. maybe also some of the ways that, that there's still room, room for growth maybe is a good way to say it. And you can just say what, say whatever you think is relevant around that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right as far as it being nuanced now. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing of it is, is sure, we've made progress. We've made tremendous progress. And I'm just really surprised at how much progress we've made when you think about where we started from, if, especially if you'd read um, the book that we just discussed at church there, mm-hmm. um, it um, they actually abandoned those people, uh, you know, with no education, no resources, no 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 money, no yeah. anything. Yeah, and this is and the slaves that were were um, emancipated right. in in 1865. Right, and and they had nothing, and and they were competing against people that at the time, of course, had more resources and knowledge and everything else you yeah. know than they did yeah and um then to just abandon them i i think of course um one of the reasons that they were abandoned is because uh well i give him a little credit i, I guess lincoln uh lincoln died and and we had johnson who was a sympathizer with the south and uh he he wasn't going to do anything for them they were <laughs> yeah. out there left out there to to you know make it the best they could and they've made just tremendous um, progress but the thing of it is is that I look at um, the Jewish uh, population and what happened to them in Germany and etc and they say never forget and I feel the same way because could it happen again maybe not in the same way right but it, it can happen again again nuanced as you said you know mm-hmm. like underground 
I, I think um, one example is the presidential election we're having now. Yeah. I think there are key words as to when the candidates speak to certain people and they know what they're talking about and etc. And it's there. And yeah. it'll probably never go away. I mean, that's right. one of those things. So you have to never forget, keep fighting for equal rights, keep, um, um, you know, trying to prepare your, your children and educate them and et cetera. And, and uh, my kids, uh, you know, not that I'm patting myself on the back, but I, they've turned out to be pretty good kids. Yeah. Uh, they've all graduated from college. They all have jobs. Uh, so... What you see, even if you look at the white community, the news sometimes shows us the worst yeah. <laughs> of the people. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. they'll show the worst of the blacks and the worst of the whites and because that makes news. The, yeah. the other thing exactly. doesn't make any news. Yeah. So there are people living and progressing and, and doing things um, um, that are just remarkable, I think, in that time frame that we're talking about because... Um, I was thinking about when, of course, when Du Bois wrote the book, I wasn't alive. But still, if you take from 1903 until 1952, mm-hmm. you know, that's almost, you know, a little over 50 years. And um, he's, um, a lot has happened. Right. Um, and it's right. really, I think, for the best. But um, yeah. we should never forget. And mm. I belong to a fraternity also, and we give scholarships to kids, and we try to help you know kids uh, go to college, uh, become good men, yeah. good Americans, etc. Yeah, I think um, the uh, one of the other things that I didn't mention, of course, about the military. I think we should have some sort of national service. I mean, it might not be the mm. military, but because we get to know each other, huh. and um, you know, and and that's. Even we get to know each other um, by financial strata also because, you know, some rich uh, kids have to actually communicate and work with some poor kids right. and et cetera. Right. And, and it's uh, unless, of course, the rich find a way to not <laughs> not, have, <laughs> not have them perform the service. Sure, I mean, They've sure. done that too. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but no, I, I think that um, I think we're we're all progressing. I, I think the millennials, uh, you know, which you are one of them. I am. Well, when I look at you guys, I mean, I, I'm encouraged. I, I mm. am. I'm encouraged. Uh, so, and I look at my kids and, you know, I, I'm encouraged. Sure. sure. So, uh, it's always a fight. I mean, yeah. and it always will be. I mean, yeah. It's human nature. I thought about the idea of never forget mm-hmm. um, this past September the 15th anniversary now of 9-11 and I really believe that that it's important that we do that we do what we can to to remember this moment in American history and of course the slogan that gets used every single year is never forget Mm -hmm. never forget Mm -hmm. and I find it interesting that uh, that even even when a kid is 14 years old wasn't alive this idea of never forget gets passed on to them because mm-hmm. this is a part of their their national memory, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and I do. I think it's important. That's why we you know we know about things like Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. because of course we never forget these major tragedies that have taken place. And so 
as a collective uh, people, we as Americans understand the importance of never forgetting. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about the civil rights movement, segregation, further back from that, you talk about slavery, mm-hmm. these systemic expressions of racism, maybe because for the length of time that this country has been a country, it, it has been essentially the power of this country has been centralized in the white male, mm-hmm. mostly. Mm-hmm. Maybe because of that, we're very quick to say never forget for things like 9-11 or even the Holocaust, which we can at least not take blame for, mm-hmm. right? Um, but when it comes to slavery and civil rights, the last thing that the dominant culture here says is never forget. Mm-hmm. The first thing that it says is, can't we just move on? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't own any slaves. Right, you right. weren't a slave. Right, so, right. so this shouldn't even be something that we're talking about anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's just really interesting to just note the difference between... So if it's a national tragedy that we as the dominant culture can feel as if we are partially a victim of, we want to never forget. Mm-hmm. But if we, but if there's even a chance that we, we might begin to feel guilty, <laughs> then yeah. forget immediately. Yeah, we don't ever want to own it. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we don't want to own slavery. Um, and it, it wasn't just the South. I mean, the North made money off of it, too, of course, as, yeah. as we know. Yeah. And um, no, we don't want to own it. Um, and I don't... I, I'm. You know, me as a person, and I'm sure that all of us, we don't blame the present generation for slavery. Sure, no, sure. But of course, uh, as I said, we don't want to forget because it can repeat itself. I mean, yeah. in, in various ways, you know. And so there's this national museum, you know, that's on the mall now, you know, for, for blacks. And of course, um, it just opened not too long ago, but mm-hmm. I donated to that, of course. And, and you, you do want to, I mean, it's a part of our history. It's something yeah. that happened. And to not own it and to say, oh, the war wasn't really about slavery. I mean, they would have been freed later on anyway. Yeah. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I mean, yeah. no. But no, it was an economic system. And, right. and, and it was it was really painful to give up, I'm sure. I mean, they were yeah. making loads of money. I mean, yeah. And money yeah. speaks in America, as we know. It does, and so, always has. Yeah, and yeah. always will, probably. Yeah. 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 Well, Paul, this has been so much fun. Um, uh, what is one thing that you have read, watched, uh, listened to, or somehow experienced that you would recommend to me? And and it doesn't have to have anything to do with what we talked about, but you know, just something that you have experienced that you would recommend to us, and why. One of them is I, I'm I'm just reading a new book now, and um, uh, the name of the book is "The Half Has Never Been Told," and mm-hmm. um, it um, it's about slavery and the making of American uh, capitalism. Mm-hmm. And um, you see, I've I think I even said it at the church discussion that we had that if you take the time value of money and you take maybe 40 million people and have them work for free (laughs) and then, you know, make that in today's money and and how much is it it has, um, you know, accumulated or whatever you want to call it, it would just be something tremendous. Right. Yeah. And so that's what they're saying in this book, actually, is that our capitalism, we, we got this good start. Because we had all these people working for free. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's by Edward E. Baptiste, B A P T I S T. 
Okay. And I'm a I'm a um, public radio kind of a person, and I yeah, listen me too. and so forth. And they actually recommended this book. Oh, great! And so cool. I decided to to buy it and and read it. I'm not I'm not about a tenth of the way through. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there's still a whole lot left to go. Yeah. Paul, again, thank you so much for the time. Uh, for letting me into your home and and for talking to me about these really important things and sharing those those really important stories um, and uh, yeah so thank you very, well, very well, much. I, I I was glad to do it and the thing of it is is that I really have faith in the young people of America mm-hmm. I really do we we still have some residual stuff left over you know and. And, of course, we've got some of these guys that, of course, teach their children to be racist or whatever sure, you want to call it. Sure. But I think that it's actually gradually, you know, um, getting better. Yeah. And we'll always keep it, I think, from the young people that I've met and talked to. And, it's a, in, like, even in the Air Force, the young people, it's an upward slope. We'll probably never get to the apex or whatever you want yeah. to call it. Yeah, But as long as we make progress and we, we're keeping you know keeping yeah. an upward trend uh yeah yeah that's that's a meaningful thing to hear from from you paul uh because i think that with the life experience that you've had you've had the chance to see this country change and grow in so many ways and so to hear that you have that kind of hope i just have a suspicion that people who are my age that are going to be listening to this podcast are going to feel a really strong sense of gratitude for hearing that because i think a lot of the message that we get every day is that there really is no hope that we're sort of spinning wheels that that don't take us anywhere and so what you're saying is that in your lifetime you have seen it change and grow and that what you see now maybe even gives you a greater hope than what you had before so that really means a lot for everyone who's taking the time to listen to the conversation thank you so much for doing that and i hope that you've appreciated it as much as i have and go in peace